Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. All right, guys. We are are recording there. Perfect. Um, Lance, welcome. Um, Zach, tell me you've got quite an interesting story to talk about, and it looks like uh, as you see the background here, it's a bunch of steak, which may or may not appeal to you. My, my, actually, my my eight year old daughter Nyla, I was asking for backgrounds. I said which steak looks nicest to you, so she actually selected that. So I will, uh, I'll give her credit for the background today. <laughs> no, it looks looks very good. <laughs> yeah. <Lance. laughs> Usually, usually we start out by having our guests just share a little bit about themselves and kind of the, tell, tell the audience kind of what they're up to. And uh, you've kind of got an interesting story. So if you want to just start by sharing that, we can, uh, we can roll in with that. All right. Um, I've only been really in the ultra running thing for like two and a half years or so. Uh, I don't really know what the precipice was that kind of kicked me into that. I had a couple of injuries from working out in the gym. And uh, a guy that I was rolling with put me in an arm bar and messed my arm up for a little while. So <clears throat> being mildly vain, I wanted to stay in shape and just started running a little bit more than I used to and realized that I could go long distances uh, at a very slow pace with no problems. So it just kind of started growing from that. Um, going way back to pushing 20 years now, which is depressing, um, I was roughly about 270 pounds coming out of high school. Uh, Nothing you would consider healthy whatsoever. Not sure what the body fat was, but I was up there. And uh, I was driving around my car one day and thought, you know, a piece of the fabric in my shirt was super uncomfortable. Went to move it, realized it was a part of my body. Figured that was roughly about the time that I should start considering, you know, changing my habits. Um, Failed miserably with uh, some kind of quirky diets, uh, you know, your standard calorie count and things like that. And actually, as sad as it is, what ended up working out, what got kind of kick-started it working was, as crazy as it sounds, just bananas. And at that point, I was running like an hour a day on the treadmill and then just eating bananas for, I don't, I, I couldn't tell you today why I chose bananas or if I read something somewhere. The internet wasn't huge then, so I, I don't, I don't know. <clears throat> but um, that shifted somehow into the Atkins diet. And I did that for a couple of years using all their bars and all that. That's before they had to tell you about sugar alcohol. So it all said, you know, zero carb. Um, <clears throat> and ended up losing about 100 pounds just just doing the hour a day of running and, uh, and a super unhealthy diet, really. Um, and then started lifting weights and then just kind of went from there. And... Uh, the big thing that's been a part of my diet up until the, the carnivore stuff that I've been doing now is what I call my cheat day. And that's on Saturdays. And that was like a no holds barred, just go all in sugar, sugar, sugar. Cause I'm still a fat kid at heart. Um, and I would just eat as much as I could get my hands on, you know, to fuel that uh, quote unquote long run. 
on on Sundays thinking that it was justifiable. And I was super lean. Um, I, I was subscribing over the last five years or so to Seal Fit. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Um, I was four or five percent body fat, uh, about two ten when I started doing ultra running, and um, <clears throat> just held on to that cheat day really. And even my foods throughout the week were were uh, I considered them clean, but they really weren't. You know, look like hindsight now. And um, I mean, that's that pretty much brings us to now. I'm sure you you'll have questions that'll fill in some of the other gaps, but I mean, off the top of my head, that's kind of what got me here so far. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's always interesting to kind of hear people's nutrition journey, especially when there's the the added element of uh, you know the need to lose weight on top of uh, you know other things, and, and it's just an interesting topic nowadays too when we talk about just the different the different modes, and there's a lot of kind of maybe debates and argument around like, well, this is the way that we should do it, whether that be calorie counting versus high fat, low carb versus vegan and all this other stuff. And, you know, ultimately I think it's like, like I like to have options. So, <laughs> so like uh, show me like, you know, a few routes that work and let my curiosity take a hold and then I'll try a few out. And then the one that, you know, my body kind of responds best to is the one I'm going to ultimately gravitate towards. And, and that's more or less why I ended up doing kind of a high fat, low carb diet. And it sounds like you kind of went in a little bit, uh, I wouldn't say blind, but just you know, nowadays when you look back 20 years, everyone was kind of blind relative to the amount of information we have now. And uh, you tried some things and, um, and then the Atkins approach was what, is that what you said ultimately kind of got you to really lose all that extra weight in the first place? Yeah, yeah, it, it was Atkins, and really, I mean, it was just the whole low carb thing because carbs have always been my my thing, you know. I and not not as much sugar as just bread, mm -hmm. just refined carbs. So the Atkins really kickstarted it. Um, but what really what really held me on for these fifteen twenty years was that 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 Saturday cheat day, and I still I still implement that just in a I take a carnivore approach approach to it now, mm -hmm. uh, so I can still kind of just gorge out for one day and still get that like that satisfaction, but it's very, very high fat and, uh, it, it, it's, it's worked great. Yeah, no. And I think that's a, that's a perfect example of just personalizing your approach to make it sustainable for you. I think like, um, you know, that's another element that I find interesting too, is, uh, you know, like you'll have someone who's following more or less 90% of a, of a pro a pre-prescribed kind of program, and then, you know, they're, they're not doing it for say 10% of the time. And, uh, you sometimes get pushed back. Well, you're not really doing it the right way. And it's like, well, would you rather have you do it the right way and then give up after seven weeks? Cause you, you know, lose interest in it or, or just, it's, you're not able to stick to the program. So I think, I mean, I always applaud it when people like, you know, take them, take their own personal like preferences and their own. Uh, route with that so like if if that's what keeps you on track having that short-term motivation of like okay well I'll do this for six days and then on the seventh day I can uh, diverge from it for a bit you're never looking too far down the road before you don't feel like you're kind of getting crushed by having to follow a specific routine all the time yeah for sure and, and really my cheat day on Saturday probably looks a lot like Sean's regular day um, as far as calories go, you know, cause I don't, that's shrank over time too. You know, I, I used to, I mean, it's, 
it used to be eight, 9,000 calories. I don't know how I took it down. And then even before I shifted over to the carnivore thing, I'd gotten down closer to 5,000 to 5,500 on my cheat day. Uh, Cause I just wasn't, I wasn't interested anymore in like the, uh, you know, f- feeling like crap on the couch and sitting there and like getting the sweats from all the sugar. And I, so I'd already kind of like weaned myself off the high, high, high calories. So now it just shifted all over to fat. So, I mean, I'm, I'm on a cheat day, I'll hover around 5,000 calories, but it's like 85% fat. Cool. So your cheat days are more just a calorie surplus day as opposed to just going like whole hog in the candy store or something like that. <laughs> Zero. So since, so since I started prescribing more to, to your guys' methodologies as far as what, I mean, the whole carnivore thing and, and the high fat diet, sugar is completely gone. I don't, I, there's no cheat dates for it. I've, I've seen how extremely different and better it is for me to not have it that I cannot even, as much as I love it and I miss it sometimes, I can't justify going back to it. I just can't. I mean, there's, there was one instance about three weeks ago to where we had family over and they were barbecuing and you know, that's, that's par for the courts for me because I can eat all the meat that I want, but they had doused all the shit in barbecue sauce and I was I was like, oh, you know, it's just barbecue sauce, you know, sugar, but it's barbecue sauce. And my body's reaction to it was so extreme for the rest of that night into the next day. I had to cancel my long run. It just, it, it, I already knew, but it spotlighted what, just how much my body just did not favor sugar. So. Yeah, I think it's it's uh, you know it's an interesting con- interesting topic, and you know I, I see that a lot of people do well with with you know particularly with body composition, they do fat cycling where they'll you know they'll eat you know a relatively sort of normal diet, maybe even a little bit sometimes leaner for some people uh, if they're interested in getting really kind of really lean, and then they'll roll in a fatter day. And and I you know like I said I don't you know most of my days are pretty standard. I mean I'm usually somewhere around four pounds of meat a day, you know forty five hundred maybe five thousand calories a day kind of average, but I, you know, I'm 250 pounds and I'm, and I'm, and I'm pretty active, but I see that, uh, you know, the thing that some people will find if they go on a kind of a stricter carnivore diet for a period of, you know, a couple months, six months, and then they start adding in food. A lot of those people will have reactions to those foods. And I think in some cases it's just, um, your just gut's not used to it again. And, and so it's just a GI reaction, maybe diarrhea, maybe an upset stomach, um, and, and that's probably just because, you know, the microbiome has changed, you know, the digestive enzymes, which were, are now geared for fat and protein, aren't really geared as much for carbohydrates. And so I think, I think some of that has to be the effect and maybe it's not necessarily that those things are necessarily bad for us. Um, but at the same time, clearly there are people that have autoimmune type symptoms, clearly people that have, you know, skin rashes or mental issues that come in with you know, either gut permeability issues or other things like that. So I think it's, it's, you know, I think it's a little bit more nuanced. Uh, and, and, you know, I, like I said, when I, when I promote this diet, I tell people, you've got to, you've got to do something that's going to work for you and how you feel good. And, and, you know, there are certainly people out there that can handle a little bit of, you know, fruit or a little bit of, you know, something off meat and, and they do just fine. So I think that's just, again, everyone has a little bit of difference in, the, in that. But I think some of the reactions that some people have initially are just that gut microbiome shift and, and some of that some of that stuff. So it may be, you know, maybe that you know maybe a smaller dose of barbecue sauce wouldn't have set you off as much, or some other, you know, you know. And again, a lot of the barbecue sauces have 
lots of stuff in there. Who knows what's in them? I mean, it could be soy, it could be all these, you know, colorants and preservatives and those things could be an issue. It might not just been the necessarily the sugar, it could have been something else. And then the other thing I would say um, is that, uh, you know, you might find that like uh, you, you could have a, you know, a small bowl of fruit, you know, a piece of a couple of raspberries and you'd be fine. Maybe not. That's just the point. You know, it's interesting to see how, how different people have different reactions to this, but, but the same at the end of the day, if you're feeling great on just meat and doing well and getting enough fat, man, that's great. That's awesome. You found that. And I think a lot of people find it as a really good baseline and, and as a tool to fix things. So that's cool. So tell me about um, your performance since you, as you've kind of progressed, you know, with athletics. Cause a lot of people are asking me about, can I do endurance sports on without carbohydrates and, you're clearly you know, doing that or making that happen. So talk to me a little bit about how your performance has progressed as you kind of went through dietary different evolutions and how you, how you adapt your diet to your performance. Well, the, when I first started doing ultra stuff, I uh, made the basic mistakes people made where, you know, they would go out. Well, I, I looked at them before the carnivore thing, it's mistakes. Now I see them as almost, that's how I should have been training. But is I would go out on runs and uh, bring no food. Didn't matter how far the run the run was. And at first, I was not even bringing water, you know. And then people are like, "Ah, you gotta eat, you gotta drink." So um, I started, you know, putting in a little bit of carbs, like the gels or whatever, at the, the eight mile mark, roughly. Um, and then over the course of the next two and a half or so years, I, there there became like a dependency. So I went from you know pushing them off and only using them every once in a while to realizing when I was going out for like my 10 mile runs, which takes, you know, it's only an hour and 20 minutes out there. That's still every three miles or so I was, you know, hit myself with one of those gels. And then I, I could just tell over time with a couple of races that my body started like, where's the sugar? Where's the sugar? You know, like it needed that or it just would not perform. Um, so I started trying to backpedal off those, like my diet hadn't changed and I was still crashing out on, on runs. Um, and it wasn't until I shifted over to the to eating this this very high fat diet and completely abstaining from food, um, which I, I don't I don't eat. It has to be upwards of over three hours now for me to eat, um, and I'll just keep you know I'm I'm doing kind of the lower heart rate stuff so that I'm kind of forcing my body to favor that fat burning. And um, <clears throat> I've noticed I had a couple of weeks at first. To where I crash hard, you know, I'd be, I'd get out, I'd do the run okay, but then at about, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon, I would just like hit rock bottom, as my body, I guess, was adjusting maybe to just not having those carbohydrates. <clears throat> but that 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 went quick, and then my energy energy started being very stable throughout the day, uh, very very stable throughout the runs. Um, and about the most I'll ever do now on a run is I have a little cocktail that I create in my uh, my handheld, which is just BCAAs and maybe one or two tablespoons of MCT oil and then just water. And then I'll take an electrolyte. And that is the absolute most that I'll ever take in on any kind of long run with the exception of races, which I, you know, been doing what Zach did. I just did it on a, uh, the strolling gym, 41 mile races. I'm kind of at a different place now with my running to where instead of going out and chasing the podium, like I did every single race and just stressing myself out, I'm trying to re redial in my strategies this year you know my ultra sign up is taking quite a hit as far as my ranking goes but I, I'm trying to not care too much about that um but the strolling gym I went out 
every three miles or so, uh, say 30 minutes. I just did one gel pack. This is after coming off of, you know, five straight weeks of no sugar and then just drank as I needed to drink. And, you know, granted, I just kept it on cruise control the whole time, but I had maybe one low over a six and a half hour period. And I would have had, I would have been yo-yoing through that entire thing under, under normal circumstances. So, I mean, it's, it's above and beyond a better approach for me personally than, than the prior constant carbohydrate, you know, three, 400 calories an hour gut reactions. It's, it's just, it's night and day. Yeah. You know, your, your kind of pathway in matches mine pretty closely where like, you know, some of the things like, yeah, I, I, I mean, we have some differences as, as you would imagine, but I think like a few things that like you noticed were real similar to what I noticed, like, uh, you know, those consistent energy levels through the day and uh, not as much swelling and things like that post big sessions and uh, quality of sleep. I think that was probably the biggest one I noticed. And one of the reasons it stuck out so much to me was that my, most of my life I'd slept really well. Like when I was in middle school, high school, even college, like I'd go to bed and I'd sleep for eight, sometimes nine hours and maybe wake up once to go to the bathroom, but just as often I'd sleep straight through the night. And then like in my mid twenties, I started waking up three, four, five times a night. And rather than falling back to sleep, like immediately after that, I would sometimes lay there and toss and turn for a half an hour. So I found myself like blocking off an absurd amount of time just to make sure I was getting like, you know, eight hours of sleep or something like that. And and that's one of the first things that kind of came back real quickly was the sleep quality. I went back to just sleeping through the night again, kind of getting that sense of rest and relaxation as opposed to like sleeping kind of a stressful component of your, of the day. Um, which I find really interesting. And then on the, the train, the, the racing side of things, uh, it's interesting too, like with, uh, the, the relative amount of fueling that you need or feel you need, it just usually ends up what I usually find for myself and with other folks I've worked with is we can usually kind of reduce what they were doing on a high carb diet by about 50% in a race setting. And it's not like a carb avoidance situation then, but it's a, it's a fueling minimization scenario, which is essentially reducing a logistical hurdle that you're going to have to deal with when, running these longer races. So like I was like you too, where I do a, say a 50 miler, I'd be trying to get in three, sometimes almost 400 calories an hour. And I think uh, now I'm down to between about hundred to 200, if it's a kind of a goal race and I'll go lower than that sometimes if it's just kind of like a training run race type of thing. But um, my, I guess my question for you is like when you decided to kind of start bringing some of the gels back for, for races, did you notice it was more difficult to digest those or did they go down smoothly or did you do something to kind of prepare yourself for that versus just saying, I'm going to stick to kind of a strict low carb or almost no carb diet and then just supplement with these carbohydrates during race time settings? I did one. So I read I, one of the uh, blog postings that you did mentioned how you'll kind of throw them in there on some test runs. So mm -hmm. I wasn't going to leave. I've done that, made that mistake before. So I just chose one long run and it was a week out. And I just, I took in a couple of the, the gels that I planned on using for the race just to see how my body responded to it. And I noticed a little increased inflammation after the run, but during I was fine. So I, I knew after strolling gym that I was going to 
have heightened information. I was I, I anticipated it, and it was actually pretty bad um, until I got home and started eating my regular food again. And by the next day, I could actually have gone out and ran like a, a ten miler or whatever. I, I felt one hundred percent fine, but it was that immediate post race inflammation that was just kicking my butt. And I mean, it, it dissipated over time and it wasn't terrible. It, it, yeah, it lasted inside of 24 hours and it was gone. But that's because I came home and instead of eating my, hey, I finished a race, I'm gonna have 15 donuts. It was like giant steaks and like, uh, you know, bacon and just a bunch of fatty foods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because I think, I think I would, uh, I would say that my experience is fairly similar when I do bring back some of that race fuel type stuff. I mean, there's, it's hard to kind of parcel out how much is nutrition based versus just like doing something as silly as running 50 miles (laughs) or more. Um, But, uh, you know, what I tell folks is like, you don't want that to be like kind of constant or have that become chronic where, you know, you're starting to get a ton of swelling and stiffness and just having that become like your normal state during training and prolonging it for days on days on days after the race like if you're kind of still stiff and swollen and you know feeling kind of miserable you know midweek after the race then like maybe look at what you're doing post race and that's something I kind of noticed too because usually now especially when it's been especially when I have a in the middle of a season or something like that after a race I'm pretty strict the next few days and it does seem like things just kind of come back to normal a lot quicker. You kind of get through some of those aches and pains of the big efforts and the races and stuff a little faster. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then you touched on sleep too. Um, that was almost immediate, uh, within 40, 72 hours. I was the same thing. I was waking up, you know, six times a night. Um, sleep quality was terrible. You know, I got the fitness tracker for the Garmin thing or whatever, but who knows if it's legit or not. But I did, I have noticed an increase in our, you know, REM sleep, however it monitors that. Um, I'm sleeping dead through the night. <clears throat> I do feel more uh, better rested. I can just tell I'm getting better quality sleep. And then as far as just falling asleep for initially, it's almost immediate. You know, I used to be so jealous of my wife because she'll say goodnight and one second later, you know, she's out. And it would take me 30, 45 minutes to get to sleep. And now it's like, I'll look over at the clock one time and then I wake up the next morning, like good to go. So sleep has improved significantly as well. Yeah, it's pretty liberating. And I think it's one thing people look past when they look at kind of the performance aspect of low carb. And uh, I think, I mean, you can get a variety of experiences. Like I'm not trying to say that it's a magic bullet for everyone. If they go low carb, they're going to all of a sudden start sleeping better. But I think you can take your own roadmap and use that to your advantage. If you know, if you're, if it's not going well and you make that change and everything else is constant to relative constant, you can be fairly certain that that was a positive move for you. And when, when we're talking about quality of sleep, we're talking about the recovery component, which is, I think a lot of times confused by people. They're always thinking about the actual training aspect of the plan and trying to get all that perfect. And then by doing that, they neglect the recovery side. So then they never actually build themselves back up after doing all that work. Uh, So I think it's cool that you were able to kind of recognize that too. Well, yeah, I've had, I've had almost every, every injury I feel like, and luckily being in the military and being in the, the organization I am inside the military, we have access to stuff that, you know, 
would cost so much money. Like I have a, a personal trainer, Stacy Barlow. It, she's used everything besides black magic to keep me together for the last four years. You know, I've had Achilles problems. Um, I have Hagler's deformities that I'm just going to have forever. You know, I can't, I'm not going to have surgery on them. Um, I've had nerve issues, all those kinds of things. And she's helped keep me together. And she's also given me some of the tools to better keep myself <clears throat> from being broken. But there was this one thing we just never seemed to be able to address and we didn't know what it was coming from. She would never, she would, it was this hyperinflammation. I keep saying hyperinflammation because that's just what it felt like to me. Like my feet would be on fire, but just my feet and just my hands, which is just crazy. And I could barely walk because of the, uh, my heels would be hurting so bad. And then a couple of days later, it would just disappear. So I knew it wasn't like a tendonitis or anything like that. And uh, that's something else that completely went away when I quit eating carbohydrates and quit eating sugar. I mean, it just, it disappeared like overnight. Yeah. I mean, your experience is certainly not unique with regard to joint and musculoskeletal pain going away. I've seen that. I mean, I can't even tell you how many times now it's, it seems like I see it every single day in different people. And it's kind of, it's kind of fascinating to me as someone, you know, whose job for most of my life was treating these things as, as a physician. And, you know, we, you know, it just diet never even came to, you know, much consideration. And that's not what I was trained in. I mean, I mean, certainly I had a lot of tools to, to operate and put, you know, inject people and put them on medications and, you know, sometimes send them to physical therapy, but diet was always kind of just, you know, there's really no talk about that. And it's been remarkable how effective, uh, you know, you know, certainly low carb, but certainly carnivore diet has been on, you know, these type of joint pains. And the sleep aspect is another thing. I think, I think most people, uh, you know, they, they do kind of undervalue how essential and how important that getting a good night's sleep is. Um, and you know, there's all kinds of sleep, uh, hygiene rituals you can put yourself through, uh, and you know, dark room, cool environment, you know, electronics out of the room and all that stuff. But still the diet seems to make a big impact on that. And, I, and I'm like you, I fall asleep. I mean, literally, I mean, five, five minutes after my head hits pill, I'm out and I don't wake up until the morning almost all the time. And, and I'm rested and ready to go. And I don't sleep quite as much as I used to. I mean, it seems like I can do six to six and a half hours and I'm good to go. And I, and I train still hard and, 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 and I don't have any issues with that. So I think it's pretty neat to see, but, um, what have you found that, uh, you know, as far as tell me about your diet pattern right now, like what are you eating on a, cause you said you had these cheat days of 5,000 plus calories. What are you at right now? How do you feel yourself? Uh, so the, the six normal days a week, it's still, I wouldn't quite classify it as like 100% carnivore yet. It's definitely high fat. I'm, I'm sitting right at around 65 to 70 fat, 20 to 25 protein, and then usually hovers around 10% carbohydrates. Um, and the carbs are coming from, uh, usually post run what I'm fueling with now, which my runs are usually always in the morning. It's like a sweet potato with, uh, an ounce of, uh, crushed walnuts and then like an ounce of goat cheese and it's it that that's my favorite one of my favorite meals of the day but then throughout the day about every two hours i'm looking at two to three hundred calories roughly of like a steak or like a kobe beef um and then for lunch and dinner i'll just throw like a pile of meat into a bowl of romaine lettuce with like a high fat dressing usually like a greek or something like that 
And then a weird ritual I have uh, is my last meal of the day, which is hovering around seven o'clock, is I'll just throw a bunch of slabs of bacon in the, and, and cook them and then eat, eat a bunch of bacon. So it's, it's a mixture of uh, like a sirloin steak, Kobe beef. Oh, and then for dinner, I also eat six hard-boiled eggs. <clears throat> so it's kind of a full gamut of, I'd say the only real carb-heavy stuff is uh, the sweet potato and a little bit of the carbs that you get from the romaine lettuce. Sure. Yeah, you're kind of like animal-based, I guess, is the way that, that it'd be described, um, which is pretty similar to kind of what I've been doing, where the majority of my intake is like an animal-based product, and then there's kind of supplementing with a little like stuff like sweet potatoes here and there, depending on where, where I'm in training. Do you, do you know, like how does your, you know, this is one something I'm kind of curious about because like you mentioned like you're training, you're doing like kind of heart rate based. Is that kind of like a mapitone or a maximum aerobic function style of training program you're doing right now or? Yeah, I did it kind of uh, just based off internet searches and stuff for a while, but then I had a coach for a while um, for about a year that was a very heart rate based coach and he kind of gave me a little more of the windows to work with, you know, mm -hmm. moderate, easy, hard efforts, how to mix them during a run, how to put them between a run, stuff like that. So like right now I've been doing what I would consider over the last couple of months and I'm probably overdoing it because maybe I, I feel like I'm starting to get lazy and kind of I'm getting too comfortable with those easy runs is doing the whole aerobic base building. So I'm, I try to hover around 145, uh, 150 max for my heart rates. And then just, and just running based off of that is what I would consider my easy effort runs. Mm -hmm. Solely heart rate. Also, all I'll have on my watch is my heart rate and I won't, the pace is what it is. The time is what it is. And, and then I, I usually run, I used to always run by time. But I've gotten this bad habit lately of running my distance again, and I'm trying to backpedal and go back to time. Yeah, I think um, the, the time versus distance, I think, is kind of an interesting dynamic. I think it's a little easier to go by distance when you know the routes well, and you, then you're kind of almost uh, subconsciously doing it by time, too, because you kind of have an idea how long it's going to take you, and you just program accordingly. Where, where it gets interesting, I think, is when you go by like a distance training program and you're trying to work with a variety of different people and a variety of different terrains. So like, you know, if you're running up the side of a mountain one day, that mile might take you know, 20 minutes, whereas you do that on a flat surface it might take seven minutes and it's all the same mile, but the time distance and intensity can be quite different. So it can be kind of a, a case by case. But one of the reasons I asked about the, the training was because what I notice when I'm doing more more of a periodized approach, uh, my lifestyle can look quite a bit different depending on what day it is or what phase of the training I am. And I'm always interested with folks who are doing a more heart rate based kind of maximum rules of function program because your training is probably a little more predictable in that other than the long run, you're probably doing a more, your, your energy expenditure might be more consistent from a day-to-day -day basis in terms of you have your resting metabolic rate plus whatever workout you're doing and with like a maximum aerobic function, you're not going to necessarily break yourself down so much that you need like a complete off day as frequently. So you maybe wouldn't have to uh, periodize your diet quite as much. So like with based on that kind of down or that, that breakdown of your, your typical non-cheat day, is that what it looks like almost every day or is there some 
variances depending on how big of a workout you're going to do or how long you're going to go for and that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the, what the problem is right now. And that's, that's where I think, you know, now that I got a lot of these big issues out of the way, like how, you know, how I'm going to train as a overall base model and then how I'm going to start eating, I can start trying to refine stuff like that. And I, I probably should have a more periodized approach to it because I've already noticed that there's certain days of the week. Um, cause I don't have, there's no set in stone mileage every week. Like I'm not putting that kind of pressure on myself. Sometimes I'll go out and say, Hey, I'll do 20 today. Sometimes the half marathon, it's, it's just how I'm feeling, the weather, just, uh, just other factors. So I don't really, I haven't really sat down and put put together a structured training approach yet. Um, which should drive, I know, my caloric intake on the day-to-day. Because I've had, still throughout this thing, even though I've noticed uh, good energy throughout the day for the most part, there's been those days to where I knew that the training, I probably wasn't eating as many calories as I should, and I'd finally hit a point to where my body was like screaming for calories or a rest day or something along those lines. And uh, I'm just going to have to tinker a little bit with my caloric intake probably and up it. Yeah, and that can just be something that takes a little bit of playing around with, I think, and then eventually becomes intuitive. Uh, you know, I'm kind of the same way where one of the, you know, it's an interesting thing. I think you've probably experienced the same where you just don't, you don't feel as like these nagging hunger pangs that are going to drive you to eat. So you end up just kind of eating on a routine. Like you decide like, okay, well, you know, based on my day, I'll eat here and I'll eat there. And, um, and it, it, it works uh, it works well in the sense that it's super simple, but then you start doing these high loads of exercise. And sometimes what I would find is like you get a few days into a program and then yeah, you'd have a day where you feel kind of flat. And my first thought is always like, okay, maybe I just need a day to just eat a ton of food. And, uh, then you feel great the next day. And then, you know, it was just, you maybe just drove a little bit of a calorie deficit versus you eat that, you eat a lot of food that one day and you're still kind of flat the next day. Then maybe you just need some some recovery, a rest day, or something just to scale back and let everything kind of catch back up. But it is kind of an interesting interesting situation. Yeah, no, yeah, that's that's actually a smart approach, and I, I feel like I'll never learn everything that there is to to learn about it. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I'm still trying to adjust to the mileage because, again, to, to, to pat the the high fat diet on the back. Prior to when I was doing all the sugar stuff and doing the carbohydrates, I'll just start saying carbohydrates so I don't completely demonize sugar, even though it, it probably is. Um, 50 to 60 miles was max. My body would really start taking up beating, and I could tell that I can't go past this. And I was stuck there for a couple of years. And somehow I was managing to still be successful in races and stuff, you know, in the 50K mark, 50-miler mark. Um, but that's why I never broke off and tried to do the 100. Well, I started really going crazy with the mileage and broke all the whole 10%, 15%. And I'm just like, hey, I feel great. I'm just going to keep running until my body says, okay, knock it off. And about the mark that I hit on the, on the uh, high fat diet is, is uh, over the course of two months, I'm, I'm sitting at a con- constant 80 to 85 miles. And that is a huge swing from 50 to 60. But I feel better doing this 85 than I felt doing that 50, you know, and, and the only thing that I've changed is my diet, which is why I'm just such a huge advocate of it now suddenly, you know, and I'm talking to everybody that can listen because 
I changed nothing else in my life. And I'm a very, I'm a very like regimented guy. Anybody that you talk to is going to, you know, they know that everything's always the same with me. Cause I'm just, I got that structure. And the only thing I changed my diet was my diet. And it, it, it changed like half my life. I feel like. So, and Lance, I want to ask, cause you said you're, act, you're, you're, are you active duty military right now? I am. Where, what branch are you in? I'm in the army. Okay. And, so, and where are you at? Uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Fort Campbell, Kentucky. What has been your, I mean, because there, were, there was just a, a study that I put up today talk about the Pentagon is considering ketogenic style diets or high, higher fat, high protein diets for their, you know, their divers because they have better ability to, to, to be underwater. But are you seeing any, you know, as an active duty guy, because I was in for, I was off, in an, on and off in for about 20 years in the Air Force, came in twice, once as a nuclear weapons guy, then back again as a surgeon. And I remember the chow halls were, you know, I mean, it was, there, was, there was a lot of food and everything. I didn't have any trouble getting meat when I was there. But, I mean, what has been the, the sort of the military, you know, nutrition advice, if, if any? Are they, are they talking about diet much to you guys? You know, they're, they're really not. Um, I'm in a little different of an environment because I'm, I'm part of a special operations committee. So we have, like I was telling Zach, you know, we have dietitians, we have uh, physical therapists on, you know, on tap pretty much. Uh, we have personal trainers. Um, but, I, but I did notice though, so there was a little, uh, I was already eating kind of high carbs, but we had a dietitian and I thought, well, you know, I, I know a good amount about nutrition, but I'm gonna go talk to this nutritionist and see what they have to say. And that's when I first started. I think I was gonna do a Ragnar, which was my first quote unquote ultra, because we did the six man thing. And I went and talked to her and she's like, ah, you know, with all this extra exercise and stuff, eat all these carbohydrates, just eat all the carbohydrates. So she almost nearly doubled the amount of carbs that I was taking in and added, you know, six or 700 calories, which was all again carbs to my daily diet. And um, I don't recall hindsight how that made my body feel. I know it was a period of my life where I was injury ridden, but it also helped, it had me put on like 5% body fat over three months. And that was enough for me to, you know, kick it to the curb. Um, and then if you look at our chow halls, they're not the most, they're not great. They're, you don't really have, you have to have a, make a conscious effort. You know, breakfast is easy. You know, there's always going to be eggs. There's always going to be bacon. There's always going to be sausage. But then past that, you know, there's deep fried this and, and it, 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 there's just not a lot of good stuff. Yeah. I mean, when I was, well, like when I was deployed to Afghanistan, unfortunately we were one of the bigger centers, Bagram, and they had three or four, you know, defects or dining facilities. And we, we could always get, I mean, not that I was consciously thinking about doing a meat only diet back then, but I, I recall that there was always sort of a meat option, even if it's just at the grill for hamburger patties. But I mean, I saw there was just, a, you know, there's plenty of junk. I mean, there's plenty of desserts and I mean, it was all you can eat. Basically we had a lot of, you know, a lot of obese contractors that were there and, you know, the military guys have to maintain a certain level of fitness, but I mean, we, we're seeing a real problem in the military. I mean, you know, obviously the special operators are going to be guys, you know, special forces guys are going to be self-selected out as being fitter guys. But in the general military population, I mean, you look at some of these guys that are, you know, E5s, E6s, E7s, or some of the, you know, some of the, you know, some of the officers. And man, they're they're not looking too good, and they're having a hard time filling out the ranks. I mean, even the, even I'm sure people from the recruitment side will say it's hard to actually find people now that are physically qualified to be in the military. And so, are you seeing a lot of uh, 
I mean, I don't know if you, how much you mix with the sort of the general military population, but are you still seeing that being a trend? Uh, yeah, unfortunately. Um, I, I don't mix a lot with the general population, but there are uh, schools, you know, there's the NCOES schools we have to go to and, and, and things of that nature where you, you have to mix with them for a little bit. And um, as sad as it is, you know, it's, it's more of a physical standpoint. Yeah, appearance-wise, I see it quite often. Um, but uh, I'll see in the schoolhouse, you know, I'll be in a classroom with 20, say 20 or so guys, and 15 out of them are uh, permanently on, like, an injury profile. That's not really a, that's a whole other thing. That's, yeah, it's the sedentary lifestyle, believe it or not, and a lot of the physical issues um, and the appearance issues, they're, they're pretty rampant. Not, not so much in uh, the special operations community, fortunately. I mean, we have to be, we, we're held at a little higher standard and we're pushed a little harder. Uh, so you don't see it quite as often. It's not completely absent. But yeah, you don't, you don't see it nearly as much. So fortunately, I, I'm surrounded by people that have that same desire and that same push. So I, I'm not really, you know, forced, in, forced into seeing it that often. Really, and unless I run on post, and then you see like the seventeen guys walking past you that probably aren't capable of running and just aren't. Yeah, I would see that constantly as a as a military, you know, physician. I mean, it, you know, guys coming in, you know, for a profile because they have the patella tendonitis or they don't want to run or Achilles tendonitis, and it was just constantly, you know, you know, kind of a battle with these guys. And and you know, and I think in retrospect, probably had they been on a on a right diet most of these people wouldn't need these sort of issues and you know because we you know we say well you're going to do a formation run today and, and the guy's like well my knee hurts and I don't want to do that and so it's a, it's a constant battle about how long can you be on a profile before they kick you out of the military you know yeah. um, but I mean it, I think so much of it goes down to diet and it's not that they're being forced to do too much activity um, you know you should be able I mean you know look at any kid you know they're out there running around every day I mean you know, and there's plenty of people that do this, but then we have a certain subset who just, for whatever reason, and I think diet has a huge role on that. Now, it'd be interesting to see um, if the military were to start to seriously look at diet and see how that would impact performance. Um, that would be, I think, a great place to look at because you've got a reasonably compliant audience. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I, I you know, I used to have, you know, if somebody, you know, was sick, you know, they couldn't call in sick because they had to go to the, see the flight dock or the, you know, whatever, you know, whatever the army equivalent was out of the battalion, you know, battalion surgeon or whatever. And you just have to say, you know, we're going to actually, you know, know what's actually going on. So I think that's a, that would be a great place to, to, to sort of study this stuff. Yeah. And they do care. Uh, and they are interested in all the facets of what's, you know, what's making people tick, uh, what does stress do? I mean, there's, there's active, research into those areas and I haven't heard the thing about the diet but that's that's good news that they they're starting to appreciate that diet can have such an impact on on certain aspects of our physical abilities yeah and I would like to you know because this is another topic that often comes up with things like PTSD we see that pretty prevalent in the military population because they're you know often exposed to you know pretty horrific stuff and you know I saw plenty of it while I was deployed and you know plenty of guys that were affected by that um, are you seeing, um, what's, what are you, do you see much of that in the special or special, uh, forces sort of community? Uh, not me personally. Uh, so my work, not so much, um, 
unfortunately, where I do see it, <clears throat> and uh, I think he is trying to address it towards diet, is my dad. So my dad, he did, he went to Vietnam, and it wasn't until just recently that uh, some stuff going on in his life caused his his kind of repressed PTSD to explode. And he's he's they're throwing ninety million medications at him, you know, and he's trying to take every single one of them and. I'm trying to push him because I've read, I've seen a lot of your, not seen, but listened to a lot of your guys' podcasts. And it seems like this constant theme uh, from, from psychology is, Hey, you know, we can, we're looking at people's diets first, you know, maybe, maybe later we can dive into other stuff if that doesn't work, but let's see if the diet can fix things first. And my dad's diet's always been terrible. You know, he just, he's a guy that eats once a day and it's next to nothing. That's just how he's always been. So uh, I'm kind of working on him. I'm going to be in town with him for a couple of weeks, coming up here soon. I'm hoping that by the time I leave, he's, you know, eating like a normal person instead of like, like a, like a, a squirrel or he just has, you know, like a nut here or there. And then he just forgets about it for the rest of the day and then pops like 20 pills because the doctor told him it'll help him sleep better, you know? Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. Yeah, we've had a number of uh, folks in mental health uh, to come on the show and talk about the same thing. I think diet is much more. Do you find any cognitive benefits to the higher fat, higher meat-based approach compared to a, to a, uh, a more carbohydrate, sugar-based approach? I don't know. I I don't know. I, I would just say I'm, I – I'm not sure either way. Um, I'm not experiencing anything negative that, that was glaringly obvious once I sw- switched over. And I'm pretty high paced at work all the time. So I don't know if I would have ever recognized it. And what's always played me so much was the body related injuries that I've been so high, so focused on that, that I just think maybe I just haven't paid much attention to what's going on cognitively. Yeah, it just seems like with that, it's, it almost eliminates just like that noise that would be around that would distract you from being productive. I think one thing I noticed is like, it, it's not, I wouldn't describe it as necessarily like they, that I'm thinking better or thinking sharper. I'm just thinking less distracted. So like, I remember when I was high carb, I do a big workout in the morning and then at work, you know, I'd be productive for a little bit and then you'd get a nagging hunger pang or something and you wouldn't be able to focus on what you're doing because you're thinking about getting a snack or, you know, going and getting a snack. Whereas like with the high fat approach, you know, you start work and sometimes it's like you almost forget how long you're working because you just kind of stay in that rhythm and you don't necessarily get pulled away by anything. 
So I'd imagine like an injury type of thing would be similar to that where you're just kind of always at least subtly or subconsciously focused on that as opposed to what you're trying to get done. Yeah, that, and you're 100% right. Now, you brought, bring it to my attention. You're right. I, I went from, I used to clock watch, you know, on the, uh, is it my next meal yet? Um, but I, 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 I started adopting these, these crazy routines to get around these injuries. You know, I'd be like, oh, my heels hurt less when, if I'm at work, if I kick my shoes off and let my feet breathe for this many hours or like make sure my socks aren't sitting on my heels. So I had these routines that I had to, to go through that would actually eat up work, you know, cause I'd be like, Oh, let's do this or let's do that. And I, Oh, it's time to get up and walk around so that my body doesn't get stiff. And I had all these things and, and now I can plug away, you know, what I got to do and, and know that in three and a half, four hours, when I stand up from the computer, I'm not going to feel like a 90 year old man, you know, and like be crippling over to the bathroom, have six people on the way to the bathroom, ask me if I'm okay. Cause I'm limping, <laughs> you know, it just, it, 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 it got old and I mean, I almost quit running altogether on multiple occasions uh, just because I was getting kind of fed up and I was getting pretty close to that when by coincidence, I just came across your blog. I don't, I, I don't know how I did. And I read it. I'm like, yeah, I, I know the low carb thing worked. I was like, let me do it and just see what happens. And it, yeah, like I was, like I'd say it took like 24, 40, maybe three days and it was such an obvious swing to things. I'm like, okay, I'm sticking with this for a long haul. I'm just going to see how it works out. It's been great ever since. So, yeah, I mean that, that comment about the hunger stuff. You know, I, I'm, you know, it's noon here, and I haven't eaten since yesterday. And I'm just, you know, I'm not hungry, not particularly hungry at all. I'm completely chilled out. I'm not having any kind of crisis, which I would clearly be doing if I were still eating a carbohydrate-based diet. So I think that is one huge advantage. One of the reasons that many people are able to. Uh, sometimes eat a little less. I mean, that's one of the nice things. You've got such a, you know, freedom from this sort of, you know, just constant desire for these low blood sugar crises, which go away. But let me shift gears and talk, because you didn't, I don't remember you talking about uh, electrolytes. Did you, do you have a strategy for electrolytes, particularly with regard to training? I do. So I, uh, what I use, I've been using them for about pretty much ever since I started doing the, the endurance thing because I read right off the bat electrolytes were important. So I use Hammer Nutrition and they have their endurance, electrolyte endurance pills. And to me, that was just simple because, you know, with the powders, you know, how much did I get? How much did I not get? But with the pills, it's like, hey, take this pill once an hour and you're good. So I just keep like in a, on a, in a race setting, I'll take, I'll have their, their BCAAs that they have in their pill form and then their, their Endurolyte in a little pill packet and then every hour on the hour, I'll just pop those pills with water and then just keep, keep running. And, um, I can honestly say that I maybe I've had, I've cramped maybe once and I've never besides, no, I, I've actually never finished a race dehydrated, like significantly dehydrated. Now one time, uh, I ran a race and I actually ended up losing the race because two miles out, I stopped for a, a pee break. And when I, when I went to the bathroom, it was brown and I absolutely lost my mind and started freaking out thinking my kidneys were shutting down and forgot until after the guy passed me because I pumped the brakes hard that I had drinking, or drank beet juice before the run. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I was I like, I freaked out for no reason. But I mean, was, when I saw that brown come out, I just, I, I was like, okay, I'm running at like a 12 minute pace from now on. I'm stopping because it was like 104 degrees that day. 
Um, it was like dead of summer. It was in a trail. So I, to me, it was like, okay, I must be really dehydrated. I thought I had been drinking properly, but yeah, it ended up being the beats. Yeah. You know, one thing I notice with electrolytes, especially, especially in the heat, if not almost entirely in the heat, like is that is like the, the, the way to keep your stomach and your digestion feeling good for me anyway. Like I'll notice if I, if I do something really long in the heat and I'm going just with water, no electrolytes, uh, that's when you'll start to get like maybe a little nauseous or, you know, find those dehydration things set in and um, find yourself in a problem. And then if you do try to eat food in the context of that, you know, that's a recipe for disaster. You're just going to get diarrhea if you're dehydrated and trying to eat a ton or anything really for me. So like, that's always one thing I've been pretty on top of since starting the high fat, low carb diet is on those hot days, especially, you know, taking in some sort of electrolytes when I'm out there for racing or for a long run, not always during just typical day stuff, because usually you can, I think, catch up a little more on whether it's electrolyte stuff just throughout the day or just salting your food a lot. But um, that was one thing I think that clicked for me pretty quickly where when I did bring the carbohydrates back during some of those longer training runs where I was testing out race fueling versus testing out kind of fat adaptation. And then during the race itself was electrolytes and water need to be in check um, to avoid some of the potential issues that you'd get with even the limited eating that you're going to do on kind of a high fat, low carb diet during a race. Hmm. Yeah. And I, and I never thought about that, that electrolytes may be what causes the stomach to turn. Cause I, I, I didn't experience any stomach issues when I did strolling and I thought I might because I was taking in, you know, hundred calories of sugar that my body just hadn't been used to for the last few weeks, every, you know, twice an hour for six and a half hours. Um, but I really, I can't say I had any stomach issues. So I guess I must've had my everything else dialed in pretty well. And I was also, you know, I, I've read before that, you know, your body stops being able to digest food at a certain heart rate. So I think it was also just important on that race too. I was, I kept my heart rate so low for that entire race that I think it was, just, it just made it conducive to being able to actually properly digest my food. Cause I was never, I was never pushing it. I mean, there was a couple of Hills uh, that I, maybe ran a little further before stopping and taking a walk break just because I was trying to, they have the seven hour shirt that you can get there. And that was my kind of easy goal to get. So I was like, Oh, as long as I get come in sub seven hours and get the shirt on fine. So that was kind of always in the background, but um, yeah, I didn't experience really anything too terrible throughout the whole thing, even with all the sugar. Do you have any other races coming up or what else you got on the schedule? Uh, the only thing I have on the schedule right now is uh, this Saturday, and it's just—it's uh, actually the same race that I ran last year that had the beat thing going on, mm. and it's just down in Jackson, Tennessee. It's just called the Jackal. It's a—it's a marathon uh, run by Josh Holmes. Okay, yeah, I know Josh. Cool. He's the one that passed me when I was having the beats going on last year. <laughs> So, but yeah, uh, nothing else. I mean, I have mental plans. I've kind of mapped out some hundred K's and then eventually that hundred miler that I, I, now that's on, I've already paid for that one. That's the Chattanooga 100 is what I got coming up in March. Cool. Hey Lance, so you got anybody that you, that you work with or are, I mean, I, I know you talked about your father, but are you seeing anybody that you work with that's noticing what's going on that you're not limping around anymore and curious and, and I'm just wondering what the response has been. Does anybody think you're crazy for eating a bunch of meat? Not crazy. 
as much as like uh, a little skeptical. You know, um, uh, two of the guys that when I was doing the heavy seal fit, heavy strength endurance stuff, uh, Mike and DJ, they, uh, I'm not saying they're carb advocates, but you know, they, your standard balanced, you know, diet, nothing too far this way or nothing too far that way. So they, they've been interested though, not as much naysayers, as much as just kind of interested to see the progression of it. Uh, other people are just, they'll say I'm crazy, but then my boss at work, he's been a carnivore guy for quite a while, more paleo, I guess, less carnivore. But, you know, when he heard that I had kicked carbohydrates, it was more of a attaboy and less of a like, what do you think you're doing? Um, and then the other, the other thing that everybody's really noticed is the weight drop off. Cause I was, uh, I was 191 a couple of months ago when I started doing the carnivore thing and I'm 166 right now. So, and it's just, I think it's the fat adaption thing. Um, my body just melts off the, the fat now. Yeah. And I, I don't know, you know, that that's a lot of weight, you know, for, for, for someone to lose. I mean, have you felt like you've lost significant muscle with that or has it mostly been body fat you think? No, I was already low, really pretty low body fat. Um, and it was as, as insane as it is for most people to hear me say, the point was to lose the muscle because I was a huge strength guy for a really long time. Loved trying, you know, getting up the 400 plus deadlifts and doing all that stuff. And that's what I did. But, you know, I'd finish all these races and be, be, people would say, oh, you're kind of fast for a big guy, you know. And I, I realized that if I was going to be com more competitive in the ultra running community, that I had to say, hey, are you an ultra runner or are you a lifter? Like, it's, you can be both, but you're going to be middle of the road on both of those. And I just decided where my passion was, was ultra running. So, you know, whereas I've been able to maintain a lot of my leg strength, I've been kind of intentionally shedding my upper body muscle mass. Um, and I, so I would say it's per, probably proportionate, you know, 50-50 muscle to fat that I'm losing. And I, I'm totally fine with that. Uh, I don't want to lose too much muscle, but I, I – you know, at 166, I'm still a heavy guy, even at 6'1", as far as an ultra runner goes. So um, I've noticed a significant improvement in my ability to sustain distance and to not take such a beating when I go out and do these long runs. Yeah, I'm in no danger of uh, uh, scaring anybody on the ultra distance runs, I can tell you that at 250. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's, are, you, are you anticipating this ultra run? Are you going to be doing this for years and years to come, or you think this is something you'll switch on to, or it's probably too early to tell, I'm sure? No, I'll, you know, I, I kind of it's, – it's all the wish I would have kind of things. Um, you know, I'm 39. I'll be 40 this year. I'm hoping I didn't uh, jump the shark with my, my ability to still be competitive. I mean, in my fantasy land, you know, I, I, I'll get to a point to where maybe I can actually take on maybe not elites, but maybe elites from my region. You know, I, I have high hopes set for myself. Whether or not I'll ever achieve those, who knows. But um, I'm going to give – now that I've gotten the injury stuff, you know, knocked out, I'm just going to keep pushing and try to improve day after day. And hopefully that turns into something, but it may not. Are you, are you still including some strength training? I know many runners still do strength training. Are you doing that as part of your stuff or are you just relying on sort of the past stuff? Um, right now, I, I promised my coaches, not coaches, but the trainers at the thing that they'd see me in the gym a little bit more. I was just trying to see where I, I could get with my mileage. But if I'm being honest, uh, I'll probably, maybe I'll cycle it in. Because um, right now, I'm 
I'm hitting a lot of trails and it seems like it's really, uh, it's maintaining the muscle mass in my legs. And uh, I do nothing for my upper body. It's hard to say. Maybe I will soon. Maybe I won't. Yeah, Zach, I know you do. I know you do some training. We had a guy named uh, Dr. John Jake, Sean. He's got this X3 bar contraption thing, which is, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, I could see where that would have a utility for, for some of the running stuff because you can get a lot of stuff done in fairly shortly without, you know, sticking 400 pounds or 500 pounds in your back. And so, I don't know, Zach, do you have any comments on strength training and endurance athletes? Because you are obviously are a very good endurance athlete. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think like one of the most common misconceptions with strength training and endurance athletes is they think like this high rep thing just because that's kind of probably it's probably twofold it's probably one because that's what they're used to because running is essentially like you know thousands of thousands of small light reps um I look at it as well if I'm doing that already why would I go into the gym and do it again (laughs) um and I'm sure the other part is that you know you get this mentality within distance running of like lighter is better I don't want to get too bulky and then there's there's truth to that but there's also a crossover point in the other direction too um but uh yeah i think just like just the mechanics of it can be good and just like the i find it more valuable because you mentioned like the trail running seemed to help a lot with your lower legs i think it's that's that's a little you can maybe avoid this the strength a little more on the trails when you're doing a build-up like that versus the roads or something flat i've always noticed when i'm doing like flatter running training blocks like my posterior chain suffers a little more i'm just not maybe activating my glutes as much in that environment as i would be running up and down the side of a hill or a mountain or something so i'll be maybe a little more conscious of doing like some deadlifts and lunges and things like that when uh when i'm uh doing training training for some of those road races and stuff like that but you know it was it was funny when uh we had uh dr jakish on the show he was talking about his, I don't know if you're familiar with his X3 bar thing, but it's, it's basically like a, a little plank you stand on and that uses bands and a, and a bar. So it, it kind of mimics heavyweight, but with bands. And he said one of the biggest hurdles to get over is like you get these big, strong, like power lifters who are looking to pull five, six, you know, 700 pounds off the ground. They'd look at a band and they're like, no way. <laughs> and like it, it's kind of like a stigma and I'm like, well, you should market that thing to endurance runners because they're, they're looking to stay away from heavyweights. Usually if you show them a band, they'll be like, Oh yeah, that's our workout. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of cool. I, I've been using it for mostly for deadlifts and some overhead press stuff, but from the weight room stuff, I don't hammer upper body too much. I'll do some body weight stuff like pull-ups, push-ups, um, and then some basic core movements that are resisted with cables and things like that, that are probably activating some upper body stuff. But, um, you know, most of my gym work is, is mobility and then some heavy lifting relative to, you know, what I can do versus, you know, <laughs> heavy lifting for me would be probably what Sean eats for dinner. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's also one of those things where I think like, it can depend, like you have to look at things through the lens of what is it going to be the most bang for your buck, especially with most folks. Um, Cause it can be easy to say like, you know, you look at a professional athlete who's doing nothing but training and racing or doing nothing but training and competing. And you know, that person has all day to essentially check every little box and then do something that maybe 
won't help, maybe will help, but won't hurt, and then they may as well do it. Whereas, you know, you get folks who have, who, who have a, a day job and they have families and things to take care of, then it's like, what do I do first to make sure I get this done? And then if I can put in some of these other things, where would they fit? So sometimes I think the strength is, is a great uh, kind of subcategory workout for endurance runners and something worth putting in there. But ultimately, you want to get the training plan executed first and, you know, make sure those workouts aren't being compromised by, by doing something, you're trying to shoehorn in something into the gym that, that you don't have time for, if that kind of makes sense. Not, and you, you pegged it really, because that's what it comes down to for me. Um, if I had that extra half hour, you know, three times a week, I'd probably go in there and knock it out. But, you know, you, the mobility, which I didn't really touch on, but I do, it, you know, it could be 30, to, 30 minutes to an hour, just depending on how tight I might feel on a certain day of mobility, uh, split up 30 minutes in the day, 30 minutes in the evening, uh, a little bit post-run. And then the run itself, which can range anywhere, you know, from two and a half, or an hour and a half to three hours. So it's like I'm already getting up at 4 a.m. Yeah. You know, to, to like get this in, so I can get to work at nine, and then I get home and then eat and then do mobility and then sit down, you know, for 30 minutes with my wife and watch TV. And then I got to get to bed early so that I wake up at four and not feeling like crap. And then it's like it's not really to the weekend. You know, and even then I'm waking up, I'm, I'm getting to sleep until like a whole 5 a.m. And then I'm really not done with my long runs and my stretching until nearly noon. You know, so it's like, where am I getting that? 30? So I had to, I just, I just decided that the easiest thing to cut was the, the maybe an hour, hour and a half a week of strength training, at least for now. Yeah, and you might find that you get more efficient and then uh, find a spot for you as you get going. But it's like anything, I think when, when people start taking on or getting excited about something, it can be easy to try to get to your end goal right away and want to be there right away. But that can come at a price if you try to do that too quick and not, you know, lay the foundation first of getting yourself, you know, taking it one step at a time, essentially. So for you, I think adding that additional stimulus of moving up from like say 40 to 50 miles a week to the 80 85 is that's a, a pretty big stimulus change so letting your body kind of figure that out first is probably smart and then you know start bringing in some of that other stuff if you have time for it yeah for sure or get all the alternating out of your system and then just go into bodybuilding or something like that <laughs> yeah i i see that i've already been there like that was a, a few years and you know what the, the weird thing i can't put my finger on and i'll I don't know if it was more of a mental drive or what, you know, when I first started getting into ultra running, but when I was back at like 210, 200 pounds running my first 50 K, my first uh, marathon to date, they're still my fastest times. <laughs> Not sure how or why, but you know, I don't know if it was just that, Hey, it's the first time. This is so cool. But I, I still haven't been able to hit those marks again. Now I haven't got out and really tried, I guess, but, um, Maybe my methodology was different. I didn't know any better, so I just ran myself into the ground on those first couple, and now I'm a little smarter with it, and that made me slower. I don't know. But I was 200 pounds out there running, you know, and now I'm 165 almost and slower. But <laughs> I'll, I'll get there. Yeah, well, and if you're doing, a like, an aerobic-based program right now, I think, like, you go into some of those shorter distance races and that's where that speed component becomes kind of more valuable too, where uh, 
the way I, I like to look at it is you, when you pick the race you're training for, find out what intensity that race is going to take place at and then kind of program backwards from there. So if you're doing something that's a marathon or shorter, you know, your, your racing pace might be faster than the majority of your training paces. Whereas when you're running an ultra marathon, certainly when you get up into the hundred mile distance, your race pace might be slower than even your slowest run during training. So then by definition, your entire training program is overspeed training and it just gets a little different. You're, you're, you're targeting different things. Um, and there's a give and take with that when you try to really specialize in one thing versus try to be a jack of all trades, so to speak. For sure. That's, that's why that's kind of my next step in the training. Like I said, it's just all been about base building or what I consider base building all, you know, occasionally I'll sprinkle in a moderate effort hour inside of a three hour effort or like decide today I'm going to take all the hills at a moderate effort, you know, just little stuff like that. And I've just been recently testing the water with that, whereas for the last six months or six weeks or so, it's been all 140 or die, you know, 140 or die, just go out there and just do the loops, do the course and, and then come home, whether that's trail or, or road, it didn't matter. And now I'm just, now I'm kind of teasing in those moderates, uh, potential hard efforts maybe in the future, but. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know what I would do if I were you, if like, if we just pretend for a minute that the hundred mile in March is like the ultimate a goal and everything else is just a process leading into it is, uh, I think like well, building up that strong aerobic base is great because what I describe is once you get that kind of more or less plateaued or like as fit as you're going to get in that system, you're in a kind of this position where you can go almost any direction with your training from an endurance standpoint. You just need to kind of pick what distance that's going to be and then specialize for that. So the way I usually gauge that is, you know, it's a, it's a heart rate based effort. So I'll watch my pace at that heart rate when everything else is controlled, like weather, train and things like that. And engage that and so i let that that pace drop because as you get more and more fit within that system your pace at that intensity kind of starts to fall and eventually it'll kind of plateau so i kind of know right, right right where mine will plateau at so when i get there you know i hang around there for a little bit uh and then ultimately that's when i start doing the programming specific to the event and the unique thing about 100 miles kind of like what i was saying before where in a periodized approach, I think you still keep a lot of those elements to a traditional training program in place. You just kind of shuffle them around so that the ones that are more specific to the race pace itself are closer to the race, which basically just means instead of doing some of your like short intervals or like VO2 max stuff close to the race, you're doing those earlier in the training program. Um, so like typically like VO2 max workouts that all prescribe are between like two to four minutes, um, basically an all out effort for that. And you're just kind of trying to build volume at that intensity. And uh, it gets you a little bit of that speed back, but it's far enough from the race itself that you'll probably more or less separate from that as you get a little closer to say the hundred mile race itself. Then you're kind of looking at some of those longer cruise intervals, tempo runs, and really focusing in on kind of the long run effort because that's going to be the most specific to your race pace itself. And uh, what you might find is, and sometimes I like to do this is since you kind of have that speed component or that faster speed component earlier in the training program, you get to that kind of fun level of fitness where you feel like you could you run a decent 5k or a decent half marathon or something like that. And I'll usually throw one of those into the training program just for the fun of it, just to say, okay, this is gonna be kind of cool to, 
you know, jump into a, an event I haven't been focusing on for a while and, and just see where that speed work actually takes you. Um, that's kind of how I try to look at that working backwards with race pace being kind of the guiding, guiding thing in terms of where you place the intensity workouts and which intensity workouts you put where. Yeah, yeah, that sounds smart. Sounds like a pretty good idea. Cool. So Lance, um, thanks for coming on the show. If you have anything else you wanted to share or anything you want to talk about, we can, we can keep rolling. Or if you want to let the audience know like where they can find you, if you're on social media, if they want to ask you a question or something, uh, feel free to do that too. Uh, well, I'm not, I don't have, that's why I started out having hammer as like a sponsor and then they didn't have me so much more as I, I'm horrible with social media. Like I'll get on there when I do a decent race or something and I'll say, Hey, look what I did. And then you won't see me again until the next race. And like, I just wasn't keeping up with Instagram. So, I mean, I'm easy to find because my page is open and there's only me and another Lance McDermott that is actually a, a fairly famous BMX biker that I always get mistaken for because he's bald too. <laughs> but, uh, so no, yeah, nothing really to plug or now one thing I did want to say though. Um, and I didn't know if it's something that down the road you'd even be interested in. But um, so I, my unit's the Night Stalkers, and we're the aviation branch of the Army for the special operations. And uh, I just got approval from Land Between the Lakes, which I'm sure you're familiar with, just because uh -huh. you've done a couple of Steve Durbin races. And it, it's a little ways off, but uh, we have an organization called the NSA, um, which is just Night Stalker Association, and they give back to like families of the fallen. So it's taken like a couple of years to get it going, but they've given me the go ahead to start working on a hundred miler that I'm doing called the Night Stalker 100 and all the money that I, that is going to go straight back into the NSA. And um, there's nothing on ultra sign up and there's, there's nothing really to push or advertise, but that's just something that I've been working on, like that I've held close to me for a couple of years now. And it's finally coming to fruition. So um, I'm shooting for maybe January of next year. Uh, we'll see if that pans out. But, you know, it's been kind of logistically tough with me deploying all the time and being busy at work and, and things of that nature. But it start, it's starting to take shape. So, Cool. Yeah, that'd be, that'll be awesome to see that, uh, that event kind of unroll. You said that's coming out in January most likely? Yeah, it's it just I, it's trying to get all the pieces together. And uh, I actually had this set up like three years ago. Um, and it was actually going to be on Fort Campbell. And some legal stuff came up to where there's charity. There, there were some gray areas. And I actually ended up having to postpone the race. And then I had to pay out of pocket every single person back their money. Because mm. I didn't want to be that guy that, that said, hey, you paid for registration. Tough. You know? Yeah. So I gave everybody their money back and just and just took it just ate it. Um, so this time around, before I start throwing it out on ultra sign up or like advertising it in any way, I just wanted to make sure that the, you know, the parks has said 100% you're good, that the NSA um, has all their ducks, their, their T's crossed so that, you know, everything's kosher before. And, and unfortunately that window starts closing on registration and I want to give people as much time as possible. So I may or may not have to push it depending on how long it takes to get all the logistics worked out, but I'm shooting for January. Cool. No, yeah. Let us know if uh, that comes up and I'll, I'll be sure to share it out. Uh, I think uh, the ultra running community is, it's always looking for fun events and when there's a good cause behind it, it can be a little more motivating to, to 
to, to head out that way. Um, cool. Uh, anything else, Sean? I think we covered quite a bit. It was good stuff. Thanks for coming on, Lance. And, uh, you know, I wish you well. And like I said, I'm hoping that more and more guys – and thank you for thank for your time in the military. I mean, you know, I, I don't think we can say that enough uh, for folks out there. But thanks for uh, sharing your story. And uh, hopefully more and more military guys will sort of learn this stuff because I think that's a, I think it's going to be a great, uh, great potential benefit. So thanks for coming on. Hey, uh, congrats on the book, Sean, and then uh, again on the uh, that insane win in San Diego there, Zach. That's uh, pretty <laughs> impressive. You know, I, I, I can't say I stayed up to watch the ending, but I first thing I did when I rolled over out of bed that next day was hit refresh on that live tracker. Yeah. <laughs> like, holy crap. So don't feel bad. My family lives in the Midwest. I don't think they stayed up to the end of it, so... <laughs> <laughs> I was, you know, I saw it trailing the whole time. And then, you know, like I said, I hit that refresh in the morning and I saw the name swap and I saw that gap and I'm like, holy crap, that's got to I mean, on a hundred, you know, that's like, that's a, that's a photo finish for like a marathon, really. I mean, that's pretty close. Yeah. But over a hundred miles, it's like, God, that's just, that's seconds really in any other race. Yeah, it was, it was tight. And I, you know, I've done probably around 60 maybe over 60 ultra marathons now and it's pretty rare where I mean, you get in some of these competitive ones where like where the field is deep enough and if you slow down someone's gonna pass you and if you speed up you're probably gonna catch someone and those are probably the closest I had a race in world 100k's in 2014 where I ended up sixth and I passed the guy I moved from seventh to six like right as I was entering the finishing shoot so that was the only one I think that was maybe closer than that. But, uh, yeah, at San Diego, it was like, I think I was 22, 23 minutes back at mile 65, which is kind of a key aid station. And, and then just kind of chipped away a few minutes at a time each aid station there until we got to the last one and took the lead and thankfully felt good enough to hold on to it. So it's always a little added excitement <laughs> to an otherwise long, slow day. <laughs> You look, in every picture, it looks like you were having a much better day than he was. I don't know if that's just perception, but you're, yeah. you're smiling everyone, and he's like, he's just like hyper, he's just focused, you know? So uh -huh. Yeah, I, I did it, I raced it maybe a little differently than I had in the past. Like, one thing I was kind of focusing on for this was just really making sure I was taking care of myself and myself in some of the earlier aid stations which I think gets overlooked sometimes because you still, you feel relatively good no matter how much you neglect things in those early stages of the race. And sometimes they just don't come to roost until the, you know, the back third of the race. So I was spending more time, I think in those earlier aid stations and uh, that, that got a little bit of a, a deficit built up. But then by the end, I was basically just blasting through them. I'd be in the, in and out in like less than 30 seconds. And uh, I think at that point, um, Chris, uh, who's the guy who got second, he, he was spending maybe a little more time. I think I made up just as much time in aid station transitions as I did running, running faster than him. So, um, it's, you know, it's a trade off. Like it's like trying to decide what's going to work best for you, I guess. And, um, sure. but good learning, learning experience for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. I appreciate both of you having me on here. Uh, you guys got me through many a long run, so I'll definitely keep uh, keep plugging, listening to the podcast, and and seeing how I can evolve my diet, my plans too. So, so I I really appreciate it, giving me my five minutes of fame here. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks for taking some time and coming on the show. All right.
You guys take care. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.